You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Today's teaching text comes from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were here on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in the fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you for um, giving us your Holy Spirit so that as we dive into the scripture that it can go from just being a mental exercise uh, to being something that truly transforms us. And so this is not just a history book or a textbook. This is a word that is active and living. And so I'm so thankful to know that um, as the word is preached, it will not return void. I do pray that it will fall on soft soil today. Um, that it will take root and that it will produce fruit in our lives that are for our good and your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> How many of you have ever seen the movie The Matrix? Raise your hand. The Matrix. One of the greatest movies of the 90s. It changed Keanu Reeves' career. Uh, up to this point, he was just known as Ted from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which was not one of the greatest movies of the 90s. Um, and if you don't know anything about The Matrix, I won't just spoil it for you, but here's kind of the plot. Uh, it's about Neo, who's there in the front, has the cool shades, nice hair, and the, and the, and the little jacket there. Um, and Neo is just, I mean, he's in a state of apathy. He's just kind of drifting through life. Life is not what he hoped it was going to be. Just kind of working his eight to four job. He's like, man, there's got to be more to it than this. I mean, he's disappointed. He's disenchanted. But then he meets Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne. And he's the guy in the back with the shades. And Morpheus comes to Neo and he says, all right, look, I've got an option for you here. I've got a red pill and I've got a blue pill. And he says, look, Neo, if you'll take the red pill, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go down a rabbit hole. And you're going to have to make some sacrifices. You're going to lose some stuff. You're going to have to relearn some stuff. You're going you're to experience some hardship. You're going to experience some trials. But if you will follow this path through, you in the end are going to experience reality. You're going to experience life and life to the fullest. And he says, but if you don't want the red pill, you can take the blue pill. And if you take the blue pill, here's what happens. You're going to go back to your apartment. You're going to fall asleep. You're going to forget we ever had this conversation. You're just going to keep going uh, like everybody else is, just kind of drifting through existence. And if you watch the movie, you know Neo takes the red pill and ends up making for a really, I think, incredible movie. But think about this. What if instead of taking the red pill, what if Neo would have said, you know what, actually, like, I'm just cool with the status quo. 
Like, you know what, actually, like, I'm cool with just drifting through life. Like, I'm cool with settling. I'm cool with just kind of working my eight to five and this really just kind of being all there is. Like, what would have happened to that movie? Well, it would have been terrible. It would not have connected with any of us. And the reason for that is because as human beings, whether you realize it or not, we all long for more. We all long for something that is bigger and better, that is beyond even what we're currently experiencing. And the reason the preacher gives us the book of Hebrews is because he's trying to introduce us to a bigger and better way of living. He's trying to show us there is a whole new world. There is a new reality. There is more to just life and kind of working this eight to five and drifting through. And so what he's trying to do in the book of Hebrews is he's trying to help all of us go from kind of this shallow, boring, mundane, religious experience where we check a few boxes to actually experiencing the real and abundant life that is only found in following the way of Jesus and trusting him and obeying him. And this is why if you have been with us, you know that we're pretty much saying the same thing every single week. Have you caught on to that yet? I mean, it's pretty much the same message every week because the preacher's saying the same thing every week. And if you wanted to kind of just boil down the whole book of Hebrews into one little short, concise statement, it's this. Jesus is greater. That's the point of Hebrews. And the reason I need to, by the way, come up here or somebody else come up here and say that every single week is we really have a hard time believing that. And the people in, in, in Hebrews had a hard time believing that. They were a people who were starting to get a little apathetic. There were people who were getting, they were being thrown into prison because of their obedience to Jesus. And they're beginning to wonder, like, is this really worth it? Like, do I really want to continue to, like, go all in on this Jesus guy? Because I'm not really sure that the reward outweighs the cost. And so every single message is the same. It's Jesus is greater. He's greater than your accomplishments. He's greater than your career. He's greater than your comfort. He's greater than your failures and your flaws. He's greater than your, your highest of highs and your lowest of lows. He's greater than your storms. He's greater than, than the, 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 the bad days and the good days. And, and he's talking, you've got to remember, to a Jewish audience here who is still kind of living in this old way, this old covenant. And they, they have in high regard these angels and these priests and, and these old heroes of the faith like Moses and, and Abraham. And he keeps saying over and over, Look, Jesus is even greater than them. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the law. He's greater than Moses and Abraham and even this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who we don't know anything about, but they held in an extremely high regard. And so the drum that he is beating over and over and over is Jesus is greater. And today, after, you know, seven incredibly dense chapters, we come to chapter eight. Where he's going to basically say the same thing again, but he's going to say it in a little bit different way. And if you look back with me in Hebrews 8, it's kind of a turning point in Hebrews. Here's what he says. Look with me. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. He says, now, the main point of what we are saying is this. I love that, by the way. Remember, uh, the book of Hebrews is not a letter. It's a what? It's a sermon. And one of the ways we know it's a sermon is because just like a true preacher, he's been talking for 15 to 20 minutes, and he's like, okay, here's my main point, Right? It's like, why didn't you just tell us the main point in the beginning? But he's been talking. He's like, all right, here's my main point. And this is actually a gift. Because where else in the Bible does the author ever tell you, here's the main point? Usually you have to work for it. You have to dive to figure out what is the main point. He says, here is the main point. So my work was kind of easy this week as a pastor in some regards because here's the main point. Here's the main point of what we've been saying. Verse 1, we do have such a high priest. Remember, he's been talking about Melchizedek and this idea of a high priest, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. We do have such a high priest 
talking about Jesus, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. He goes on in verse 3 through 5 to try to explain this a little bit further. He says, look, every high priest that you guys have been looking to and, and that you're familiar with, they're appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, right, in the sanctuary, in the temple. And so it was necessary for this one, Jesus, also to have something to offer. Verse 4, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Super clear, right? Everybody got it? Ready to move on? No. Like most of us, like we read that and we're still like, I have no idea what he is talking about here. So let me try to just take a moment to explain to you what is going on. And by the way, this next part, I'm guessing five to six, seven minutes, is going to be really, really heady. It's going to be really teachy, okay? But I trust you guys, if y'all can stay with this, you can do it. So just try to, to focus here because there is a payoff in the end to understanding what I'm about to tell you. When you read in the Bible, despite popular belief, God's plan is not to get us to heaven. God's plan is to get heaven to us. God's plan has never been for earth to be separate from heaven, but for earth and heaven to actually interconnect, to overlap. And when you think of heaven, listen, it's very important that you get this. Heaven, despite those old heavenly highway hymns, is not somewhere in the sweet by and by. Heaven is not some place in a far distant land where like these little chubby babies are floating around on clouds playing harps. Okay, like that's, that's not the way the Bible talks about heaven. But when you think of heaven, here's heaven, you ready? Heaven is the presence of God. Heaven is the place where God is ruling and reigning. And because everything is in submission to God's rule and reign, everything is as it should be. And if you're like, I can't really follow that, what do you mean? Well, think of the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, you have heaven and earth completely interconnected. They're overlapped perfectly. And so what's happening in the Garden of Eden? You have God walking, his presence, right? He's walking with the first humans in the cool of the day. They have this perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another. I mean, everything is in submission to God's rule and reign, and therefore everything is beautiful and rhythmic and as it should be. But if you've read the story in Genesis, you know by the time we get to chapter 3, what happens? Sin? Okay, yes. Adam and Eve, thank you, Chris. Adam and Eve sin against God. They rebel. They eat of the fruit God tells them not to eat from. And immediately as a result, look, everything is fractured. Heaven and earth separate. Right? What happens now is Adam and Eve go from walking with God in the cool to, to hiding from God, right? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, right? It is divorced from the kingdom of man. It is torn apart. And as a result of this fracture, we see immediately strife enters the picture, relational breakdown enters the picture, death and disease and all kinds of dysfunction enter into the picture. And this is a heartbreaking, tragic story. But fortunately, it does not end there because in Genesis 3, God comes to Adam and Eve and he says, I'm going to fix this. You can't fix this. I'm going to fix this. Uh, by the way, uh, Megan and I's pool has a leak, and we cannot for the life of us figure out how to fix it. We tried yesterday for literally like six, seven hours, thought we could fix it. So frustrating. We cannot figure it out. And what God is saying here is, look, 
That's the way it is with the human condition. You can work and 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 patch and patch and patch and patch and research and research and research and do all this stuff, toil, toil, sweat, sweat. You will never be able to fix your sin problem. That is bad news. But the good news is, he says, look, I am going to fix this. I am going to provide a way for heaven and earth to overlap again. And so, how does God do this? Well, this is where the preacher begins to to, to point to right here in chapter 8. What happens is God comes to Moses and he gives Moses on this mountain a glimpse of what heaven is like. He then says to Moses, I want you to carefully construct a tabernacle which is meant to be kind of this earthly representation of a heavenly reality. It's meant to provide a space where I can dwell safely among people without it obliterating them. Now, something you need to know whenever you hear me talk about God obliterating people, a lot of times we look at that and we're saying, man, like, why is God that way? Like, why is it that, that God won't let us go into his presence without it destroying us? Like, like, why is that? Right? Well, because the Bible is clear. Look, when you are in your sin nature, you cannot enter into the holiness of God and not be demolished by him. And it's not because God is so bad. Think about the sun, for example, S-U-N. The Bible Project guys talk about this. You think about the sun and the sky. If you got too close to the sun, what would happen to you? You're going to die. Is that because, and I want some feedback here, okay? Is that because the sun is bad? No. It's just because the sun is so powerful. It's so holy, if you will. And it's the same way with the presence of God. You cannot, with a sinful nature, possibly enter back into the presence of God without it destroying you. Not because God is so bad, but because he is so good. He's so powerful. He's so holy. And because God doesn't want things to remain that way, he says, Moses, build this tabernacle, this earthly representation of a heavenly reality. And I've got a picture of this. I'll throw it on the screen for you. And here's the way the tabernacle looked. Eventually, this would give way to the temple, which was far more glorious than this. But in the tabernacle, what would happen is you could walk in. Actually, you couldn't walk in. If you were a priest, you could walk in in the front there. You could make sacrifices of different kinds for the people. There's then these ceremonial washing kind of you know rituals that you could do if you were a priest. And at the very back of the temple, this is a place that was called the Holy of Holies. It was where God's kind of, it was the, the hot spot of God's presence. And only, listen, only the high priest could enter into this space. Only the priest of all priests, the best priest of them all, could enter into this space. And once a year, what the high priest would do is he would shed the blood of this perfect animal for the forgiveness of the people's sins, which I know is super weird to us. We don't fully understand that. I could give you a whole sermon on sacrifices, but for our purposes today, you just need to understand, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the only way God's people could actually experience just a little bit of God's presence The only way that God's people could get just a taste of what heaven on earth is like is through these sacrifices made by the great high priest. And this is why in verse 5, the preacher says in chapter 8 that this tabernacle, as cool as it was, he has a saying, he says, it really was just a shadow of something better. It was just a copy of something better that is to come. And so when you think about this, how many of you, um, maybe when you were younger, played paper football? Anybody in here play paper football? Okay, paper football is kind of like football. I mean, the fact that like you got an object you're trying to move, you're trying to score in the same way, it's kind of like football, but it's not really football. Like it's a copy of something much better, much greater. And what he's saying is that's the way it was with this tabernacle. 
He says that, that, that the tabernacle, it resembled heaven, but it wasn't heaven. And here's why Jesus is so great. He says, man, in the old days, you had high priests who would go into this copy of heaven on your behalf. But now, he says, we have Jesus, the great high priest, who doesn't just go into the tabernacle for you like, like he is the tabernacle. He doesn't just like go to this copy of heaven for you. He brings the real heaven to us. This is why, think about this, it's so important that you get this. Jesus' very first words that come out of his mouth when he walks on the scene are what? Anybody remember? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, I have brought heaven to earth. It is right here, right now, in this space. This is why whenever the Apostle John in John 1.14 talked about uh, Jesus, he says, God became human in Jesus and made his quote, dwelling among us. The Greek word used there for dwelling literally means he made his tabernacle among us. What is John saying? He's saying well, when Jesus came to earth, he brought heaven with him. He provided a way for humans, ordinary people, not just for priests, but ordinary people like you and me. He provided a way for us to experience a life-changing encounter with the presence of God. And how did Jesus do this? How did he accomplish this? Here's what's so crazy about Christianity. Like, like Jesus didn't come and make some animal sacrifice like all the priests before him. Jesus became the sacrifice. Jesus shed his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can now, when we put our faith in him, stand before God holy, blameless, and acceptable. This is why John the Baptist, whenever he saw Jesus, what did he say? What did he declare with his own mouth? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just like the high priest used to sacrifice a lamb in the temple, Jesus became the lamb of God who through his sacrifice put an end to all sacrifices. And it is through this sacrifice, through Jesus' death on a cross, because he shed the blood for his blood for the forgiveness of your sins and my sins, we can now have access into God's presence anytime, anywhere, any place. When Jesus died on the cross, I remember that, that curtain that separated the people in the Holy of Holies from the presence of God. That curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, not from bottom to top. Why? Because God was reminding us, just as he said in Genesis 3, I'm going to fix this. You're not going to work your way to me. I'm going to work my way to you, and I'm going to unleash my presence, not just for the priests, not just for the pastors, not just for the spiritually elite, but so that every single one of you can experience me. So, what's the big deal about that? Why does that matter? By the way, what I just said would have blown away the first audience. And that's just because you didn't have to spend all of your life working to try to enter into God's presence. So we take it for granted, right? It's this kind of idea like when you have a really loving, kind parent and, and you take them for granted until they like die or it's taken away. Like then you realize what you had. It's like when you're in it, you're just like, oh yeah, of course we have it. But we often don't realize that. So why does this matter? Like, why, do, why does it matter that we get to enter into the presence of God, that we get to, because of Christ, experience the presence of God? And listen, the reason this matters so much is because you will never experience the life you're longing for apart from the presence of God. You won't. And we need to realize this. I mean, the truth is, one of the things we all have in common is we all long to be happy. We all long to be fulfilled we're all searching for fulfillment. We're all searching for satisfaction. And, and the older I get, the more I truly am convinced nothing will satisfy us apart from God. 
Now, some of us don't believe that. Some of you believe, like, Jesus is my salvation, but you don't believe he's your satisfaction. And that's the way I was up until I was converted in college. I was like, yeah, God can save me from hell, but he really can't do anything for me here on earth. So we don't really fully understand who God is and what he's done and how, how great, truly, his presence is. You know, one of my favorite books of the Bible, probably actually my favorite book of the Bible, is the book of Ecclesiastes. I love how real and how raw Ecclesiastes is. If you have a friend, by the way, who's struggling and doesn't really believe in God, doesn't really believe, doesn't have a strong faith, give them the book of Ecclesiastes first. I really would encourage you to do that, then have them read the book of Mark. But Ecclesiastes is a book where we're introduced to this man named Solomon. And Solomon was a man, a real man, who had more pleasure and power and popularity and possessions than any of us will ever have. Like, like he is off the chart successful by whatever standards you want to use. Like, whatever mountain, think about it like this, whatever mountain that you are trying to climb in order to find happiness, Solomon has already made it to an even bigger mountain. And he comes back down to the book of Ecclesiastes and he says, hey, let me save you the trouble from wasting your life. He says, let me just tell you, like, like if you could get to the top of the mountain, and you probably won't, but if you could get to the top of the mountain, let me tell you what's up there. He says the Hebrew word, it's all hevel. It means it's all smoke, it's all vapor, it's a chasing after the wind. It provides you some temporary satisfaction, but as soon as you think you have it, it evaporates, it disappears, it goes away. It doesn't give you what you think it would give you. You know, in my mind, one of the greatest sports of all time is tennis. And one of the greatest tennis players of all time is this guy right here, Boris Becker, who was a 1980s, just tall, blonde tennis phenom who had a, just a powerful, like massive serve and forehand. And in 1986, at the very pinnacle of his career, he just won Wimbledon for the second time. The year before that, he was the youngest person ever to win Wimbledon. And looking back on his career years later in an interview, here's what Boris said. This is, a, this, is not a, this is not preacher talk. This is a real person talking, right? Here's what he says. I was rich, famous, and had all the material possessions I wanted, and yet I was still unhappy. Despite being a two-time Wimbledon champion, I found myself on the verge of suicide. Listen to this next line. This is haunting to me. I wish someone would have told me that when I get to the top of the mountain, there's nothing there. So why do we work so hard to get on the top of that mountain? I guess we think we're different. I know I do. I'm like, yeah, it didn't work for him, but that worked for me. Like, if I had that money, I had that fame, if I won the Wimbledon, I promise you I'd be happy. We think we're so different, and we're not. We're not different than Boris Becker. We're not different than Solomon in Ecclesiastes. And, and here's what's crazy, guys. Think about this. Like, there was a time period where Boris Becker would walk by people and they'd go, wow, there he is. The greatest in the world. You and I will never be the greatest in the world at anything. I'm not trying to crush your dreams, college students or high school students. Like, maybe you will, you'll beat the odds. Okay, you'll be the first person ever out of Paragol to become the greatest in the world at something, okay? You could do it. Dream big. Sorry, all right? But also realize, more than likely, it's a really big world. It's a lot bigger than you think it is, and you're not going to be the best in the world at anything. He was the best in the world at something. He had more fame, more money, more success. 
probably more sex than any of us could ever imagine, and it didn't satisfy. Why? Because he's just like you, and he's just like me, and he's just like the teacher of Ecclesiastes. We cannot find satisfaction apart from God. Why? Because it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, when you were born, God put eternity in your heart. You are longing for something that is eternal, something that cannot fade away, something that cannot die, that cannot break, and only God can fit that hole in your heart. In the words of David, he says in Psalm 16, in God's presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who is at the right hand of God right now? Jesus. That's what it just says in, in Hebrews 8. He's sitting there at the right hand of God. Jesus in Christ is pleasures forevermore. And by the way, why is Jesus sitting at the right hand of God? It says he's still serving on our behalf. Why is he doing it from a seated position? Anybody know? That's exactly right. Because the work is finished. It doesn't mean anything to us, really, in our culture. But in this culture, if you were seated, it was a sign of authority, of ruling and reigning. It's also a sign of completion. What Jesus is showing us, the writer of Hebrews is showing us here, is that all of the work that needs to be done for you to experience the presence of God, the salvation and the satisfaction that comes from God, all of that work has been finished through Christ. And that is the good news of the gospel. That's it right there. That's why, I think it's why we all came here this morning. Because we believe this. Maybe not not always fully. But this is why we come together. It's why we sing. The songs that we sing, even if we don't feel like we have a great voice. Think about what we're doing. It's weird stuff this morning. But it's why we do it, right? We come and we sing. We listen to someone preach. You're just sitting there. Listening to me talk about the Bible. Like, like why? Because this is, what it's, this is why we take communion. This is what it's all about. It's about Jesus. It's about the fact that everything that we need and long for has been provided for us through his life, death, and resurrection. You see, Jesus, I used to say, like, Jesus came to establish a whole new religion. The religion of Christianity, right? Like, that's the way I thought of it. That's not true. Jesus didn't come to establish a new religion. Jesus came to end religion. He came to put an end to all of the work and all of the toiling and all of the sacrificing and all of the positioning and all of the sac- uh, all the performance. He, he came to put an end to all this stuff that we think we have to do just to get God to approve of us. Jesus came to introduce us, those of us who have been living under the law, to a whole new and better way to live. A way that is not marked by law but by grace. A way that is not primarily marked by rules but by relationship. A relationship with this God who is the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. And that's why the preacher goes on to say what he says. If you look back with me in verse 6, we'll go on. He says, here's a fact for you. The ministry of Jesus, because of everything I just said, you just need to know, it's way superior to all the other high priests and their ministry. Because the covenant of which Jesus is the mediator, he is is superior to the old one, since the new covenant, we're going to talk about that more in a minute, is established on a better promise. Verse 7, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, and what was the first covenant God made with his people? And guys, listen, I know there's a lot of information coming today. I talked with two people after the first service. They were like, can we get together and like dive deeper into like 15 different things that were said today? Like, I get that. It's a lot coming at you fast. Verse 7, there had been, if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, what's the first covenant? It was basically this. God said, here's the law. If you'll obey the law, I will bless you and protect you. It's what's called a conditional covenant. You do this, I'll do that. Okay? If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Verse 8, but God found fault with what or with who? With the people. 
God didn't find fault with the covenant. He didn't find fault with his law. He found fault with the people. Why? It says, the days are coming, he'll tell us, verse 8, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and turned away from them, declares the Lord. And so here's what he's getting at here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, um, it's not that the old covenant was bad. The covenant about obeying the law, the problem is just that the people couldn't obey the law, right? The law was good. And we need to hear that, by the way. The law of God is good. Like, rules are good. Like, I'll use sports again as as kind of an example of this. Like, if you like golf or you like basketball or you like football, you like the rules. Like, the rules are there to help you enjoy the game more. My son Wyatt started playing basketball. He didn't know any of the rules, and he was constantly frustrated. But can't do that. Can't pick up the ball, dribble it again. That's out of bounds, right? He's like, ah. But now that he likes basketball, he realizes like the rules are there to help him enjoy the game and experience more freedom in the game. That's what the law was meant to do—to help them enjoy God, to experience more of God. The problem is they could not keep obeying the law. And so, what does God do? Well, He in verse ten establishes a whole new covenant. Not a conditional covenant, but an unconditional covenant. Here's what this covenant is like in verse 10. It says, this is the covenant God says, I will establish the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will, don't miss this, put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. Okay, guys, listen, this is huge. In the book of Deuteronomy, when God establishes the law with his people, you do this, I'll do that, you obey the law, I'll provide for you, I'll bless you, I'll protect you. What he then told them to do was write the law everywhere so they didn't forget it. He'd say, write it on your doorpost, write it on your doors, write it on your gates, write it on your hands. And so everywhere Israel went, they were reminded of the law, which also meant they were reminded of what? Their absolute failure. Everywhere they went, they were reminded, we cannot do this. We are sinners. We are lawbreakers. We are not holy like God is holy. And therefore, as a result, there were times where many of them wanted to tap out and say, I just can't do this anymore. And because God knows this is true, he says, look, I'm going to establish a new covenant. And look at this. In this day, he says, I am going to write the law, not on your doorpost, not on your hands, not on your head, but I am going to write the law on your heart. Now, why does that matter so much? Because what God is saying is this, when you trust in Jesus, this great high priest, you know what he's going to do for you? He's not just going to say, okay, try harder to be better. Go do all that stuff now. Like he's actually going to change your heart and give you a desire to do the thing he's commanded you to do. Why does that matter? Because in the words of James K.A. Smith, you are what you love. You are what you desire. Show me what you love, and I will show you how that thing is shaping you for better or worse into the man or the woman that you were created to be. If you, for example, love alcohol too much, what's going to happen? You're going to become an alcoholic. Or if you, you know, love success if you desire success above anything else you will become what a workaholic if you desire approval and praise from all people and want to be like you will become a narcissist you will begin to make everything about 
you. And what's great about this new covenant is whenever Jesus comes into your life, he changes your loves, he changes your desires, he redirects your heart to God so that you can become more and more like him and therefore your true and better self. Like, isn't that good news today? Like, I remember when I became a Christian, I mentioned it earlier, I was 20 years old. Like, this is no exaggeration. I understand I'm a preacher and I exaggerate things sometimes. This is not one of those times. My wife is, can be able to vouch for this because she's met some of my teachers from high school. I literally did not read a book until I was 20 years old. Didn't read a book. I had no desire to read a book. I'd started to pick it up, couldn't do it. When Christ saved me, like, I immediately began to have a desire and a thirst for books, and not just any kind of book. Like, I was hungry and thirsty for God. Like, any theology book, I, I, I wanted to consume it. I didn't do that. I promise you I didn't do that. I didn't, like, flip a switch. Like, now nah, I'm going to be studious, or now nah, I'm going to have the discipline to read books. Like, literally, overnight, boom, a new desire just completely flipped and changed. Uh, I mean, before I met Jesus, I mean, I, I was ate up with lust. I didn't even care about anybody about myself. I didn't care about who I hurt, sexually speaking. Like, it was just kind of like, I'm going to do, if it looks good, feels good, tastes good, like, I'm going to run after whatever that is. But when I met Christ, things begin to change. Now, I'm saying I became perfectly pure, but I began to desire purity. I, I went from, like, growing up in a church where I was every Sunday morning, Sunday night against my wheel, where I was like, the only reason I'm here is because my parents make me be here. To all of a sudden, I meet Jesus, and guess what? Like, I wanted to be there on Sunday mornings. Like, I wanted to worship. Like, I wanted to sing. Like, I wanted to hear preaching from God's Word. Like, even if it wasn't that great, it's like, as long as it's God's Word, like, I want to hear it. I want to take it in. Like, I had these, all these new hungers and these new thirsts that were about God. Now, to be clear, and I'll talk about this more in a little bit, like, that doesn't mean that I don't have corrupt desires now. Like, when you give your life to Jesus, like, He changes your heart, but you still have this thing called the flesh. So you're still going to have corrupt desires. You're still going to, at times, want to do things that are in, in, in opposition to what God wants you to do. And we'll talk about how God responds to that in just a little bit. But for now, know that when you give your life to Christ, He writes the law on your heart. Like, one way you can know if you've truly received the Spirit of God is your desires begin to align more and more with the desires of God. And not because of anything you've done, but because of God's grace. And then he goes on and he says this, not only will I put the law in their minds and write them on their hearts, verse 10, I love this next line. I will be their God and they will be my people. That is what this is all about, guys. Students, listen to me very carefully because I missed this when I was a kid. I hope you don't come out of this church missing this. Christianity is not primarily about rules. It is about a relationship. It is about a relationship with God who alone can save you and satisfy you. God wants to walk with you like he was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then in verse 11, look at this. It says, no longer will they teach them, or will they teach them to their, teach them their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord. Why? Man, I love this verse 11. Because they will all know me. They'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. The priests won't be the only ones that know me. The spiritually elite or the varsity level person like Christian, like they're not the ones that will know me, but everyone who trusts in Jesus will know me. Unlike the old covenant where like only the priests could get a taste of what heaven was like and kind of come back and report to the people. He's like, no, like you can experience heaven. Like you can in Christ experience the presence of God. Like you can know God. You can know God. You don't have to look to me to know God for you. Like you can experience the presence of God. You can know God, Paul says in Ephesians 3, in a way that surpasses knowledge. Like, Does that make sense to you? Like you can know God in a way that like, you can't even put into words. 
Like, I know my wife in ways I don't know any of you. Like, I know my wife in a, in, a, in a way that I can't even really put into words and listen. Like, according to this passage, you can know God that way. And I shared this years ago, back when we were at the cinema, but back when I was in high school. No, it was my freshman year of college, actually. Uh, I had a buddy that was in a band, Seven Foot Sharon. And so, Jessica, you remember the band Seven Foot Sharon? And uh, we went to school together. And... Um, they won a battle of the bands, and because they won the battle of the bands, their reward was they got uh, to open for Tommy Lee and the Methods of Mayhem. Shout out to the late 90s, by the way, another 90s reference. And they got to then get second row seats to this uh, concert, the Arrowhead Music Festival. Anybody go to the Arrowhead Music Festival back in the day? The only one. Okay. Uh, only one that raised their hand in church, I guess, at least. And so... Um, there they are. They're supposed to be second row. They were rubbing it in my face, like, leading up to this, like, because I couldn't get tickets for it. But anyways, like a good friend, I go, I support them. They're playing uh, outside the concert, actually outside the building, kind of before the concert got started. It really wasn't as cool as I thought it was going to be. I thought they were going to be main stage. Anyways, um, so they're playing. I had to go use the bathroom. I go into the building, and I, I don't know if I wasn't supposed to be there, if it was, like, the VIP only. I don't know. But I'm in the bathroom, and all of a sudden, one of the members of Tommy Lee comes up to me, and he's got to use the bathroom, but he's like, hey, man, like, I can't find the stage. Can you show me where the stage is? I'm like, absolutely, I can show you where the stage is. Like, you know, kind of fake it till you make it deal, you know? And so, like, we walk through. Eventually, we find the stage, and he goes and does this thing, and nobody asks me to leave. So I'm like, I'm just going to hang out back here as long as I can. And so I'm back there. The concert eventually starts, and after the first band plays, a guy's like, are you going to stand there, or are you going to help us get equipment off the stage? And I was like, this is going to be awesome. So I go on stage. There are my friends in the second row that are like, what are you? doing and so i'm like it was great like at one point like it it was a packed place and like people were hitting a beach ball beach ball came on the stage and i was like working the crowd like you want it and they're like yeah over here and like no like you want it like it was great uh highlight of my of my life i think and so anyways i go off stage five minutes before tommy lee comes on uh he comes and stands right beside me incredibly tall guy freakishly tall um comes and stands right beside me and he looks at me, and he's like, what's up, dude? And I said, what's up, Tommy? And then he went on, and he played the show. Now, for the next two years, I told people that Tommy Lee was my best friend. Okay? <laughs> and um, the reality is, I didn't know Tommy Lee any better than you know Tommy Lee. But here's my, here's my fear. The reason I share that is my fear is that there are some of you in here today that maybe know God the way I know Tommy Lee. Like, you know about God, but you don't know God. Like, I grew up knowing about God, I promise you. My dad was a preacher. I was every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. I knew about God, but I didn't know God. And that's where some of you are today, man. Like, you know about him. Like, your mom or dad's talked about him. Preachers talked about him. Friends talked about him. Like, you know about God. You've read about God. You've heard about God, but you don't know God. And here's the good news today. You don't have to work your way into his lap. Because of Jesus, you can know God, no matter who you are or what you've done from the least to the greatest. And if that's not good enough, look what God goes on to say, because he knows that even after he changes our desires, we're still going to battle the flesh. We're still going to struggle with sin. He says this in verse 12, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Now, the bad news is, um, though Jesus will change your heart, you still have this flesh, and therefore you're still going to have corrupt desires. 
um, you're not going to be able to get rid of all those all at once. You know, I, I told you, like, I, I began to desire purity, but it took a long time for me to actually begin to become more and more pure over time, and still times where I stumble and, and fall, and, and that's the same way it is in all of the Christian life. And that's really bad news because sin creates consequences, it creates shame, it creates guilt, it does a bunch of, like, really gnarly stuff to our relationships and hurts people, it hurts us. So the bad news is, like, we're going to continue to sin, but the good news is, like, you cannot out God's grace. Like, Jesus' forgiving will always outpace your sinning. And therefore, because that's true, when you sin, not if you sin, but when you sin, rather than running from God, you can run to God, and you can know that he's going to have arms wide open. You know, I was reminded this week of an illustration I heard years ago from a pastor in Texas, and he talked about how, like, you remember whenever your kids started walking? Um, remember what that was like when your kids started walking? Like, they just stumbled all over the place. And they, they would constantly fall. And some of the falls were worse than other falls. Like sometimes like they'd, they'd skin their knee or hit their head on the table. I mean, there was blood. There was sometimes tears. And what's amazing is as a parent, if you were a good, patient, kind parent, is you never got frustrated with their falling. I never looked at my kids and was like, can you please get it together? Why can't you walk? Your mom can do it. You know, I can do it. I mean, even the dog, if you have a piece of bacon, will do it on its back legs. Like, wasn't any of that. I wasn't frustrated. And my guess is you weren't frustrated with your kid either. That whenever your kid continued to fall over and over and over, what would you do? You'd pick the kid up, kiss them, hug them, wipe away their tears, put a Band-Aid on the knee, and then put them back on their feet so they continue to grow and move forward. Same way for your heavenly father. If you are a Christian, you need to know that your father is one who, yes, loves to see you on your feet walking in the right direction, but he does not grow tired of picking you up when you fall. The good news for the Christian in this room today is that your falls do not turn God off. He's not freaking out over your sin like some of you are. Now, he's not flipping about sin, but the Bible is clear in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your fall, if you are in Christ, does not attract God's wrath, but it attracts God's grace. And his grace, as Paul says, is always uh, sufficient. And this is what is so beautiful about the gospel. It's why it's so scandalous. You know what scandalous means, by the way? It's like, you know, like with, when, they, when, a, when someone on this side of the tracks falls in love with someone from that side of the tracks, you're like, oh, that's scandalous, right? It's like you see like a white guy in the NBA. It's like, that's scandalous, right? It's like that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't belong, right? Or whatever. It's my only examples I got. Scandalous is like it, it shouldn't happen. Like it doesn't feel right. Like that's, that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And then the gospel really is the most scandalous news on the planet. Some of you in here are like, man, you, you're still so hung up on places you have fallen. You're beating yourself up over and over and over. And you just need to know, like, the whole time while you're sitting there beating yourself up, God is there the whole time, ready to pick you up and put you right back on track. How do I know it's true? For I will forgive their wickedness. And I will remember their sins no more. Not going to bring it back up. 
not going to rub your face in it. And if that's not good enough, here's the way he ends, and this is where we'll end, verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one, what's the word? Obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon what? Disappear. I don't know where this came from in my life, but I grew up believing that Christianity was more about rules and relationship. Like, I grew up with this idea that what God wanted most from me was to be a good boy. What God wanted the most from me was just to not sin. What God wanted the most from me was just to do the right thing because, dadgummit, I told you to do it. And I began to believe that the more I could try to do the right thing, the more God would love me. But then I continued to fall over and over and over and over and over, and eventually I just said, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. And, you know, <clears throat> I'm glad God has been working on that in me, but that's so deeply enriched in my own story that there are still times, like this morning I was thinking about this, where I can preach God's grace to you, but still live like I'm under the law in my own personal life. Times where I can still believe that my worth is tied to my work. And my guess is today, like, I'm not alone. That's my guess, is that maybe some of you are in that exact same place. There are some of you here who are still living under the law rather than under the grace. Some of you who are still living with this, we've talked about this before, but this he loves me, he loves me not kind of mentality when it comes to our relationship with God. And so it's like, if I have a really good day, I think God loves me more than if I have a really bad day. And so, like, if I was a good parent today, I was patient with my kids, and I was a good spouse, and I listened well to my wife, I know God loves me. But if I blew it in my marriage, or I blew it in my parenting, he loves me not. If I read my Bible and I pray, he loves me, but if I miss a day, he loves me not. And see, the problem with this way of thinking, man, is, is, is you begin to view God not as a loving father, but as this, like, celestial police officer who's just always following you around, waiting for you to mess up, mess up so that he can bust you. And listen, here's the thing. I'm so glad that at the cross, what Jesus came to do is he came to just say, look, it's time to change the subject. It's time for you to stop focusing so much on what you have done or have not done, and you focus completely on what I have done for you. To stop getting so caught up over your failures and your flaws and to bring all of that to me and trust that truly my grace is sufficient for you. I remember 11 years ago, I went to a conference with a guy from our church, Ryan Carpenter. And there was a guy named Ray Ortland teaching. And he talked about under in the old covenant, we were married to the law. But under the new covenant, we're married to grace. And I'll never forget this example. And I, he basically just asked the question, which one are you married to? Which one are you in a relationship with now? Are you with Mr. Law or Mr. Grace? And he said, here's, here's the difference. Mr. Law is the kind of spouse that when he comes home from work, he points out every single thing you did wrong that day. Mr. Law is always complaining, always criticizing, always showing you this is how, 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 how far short you have fallen. And the worst thing about Mr. Law is Mr. Law is always right. He's not lying. You are a mess. You do fall short a lot. And Mr. Law is there to constantly remind you of that. Fortunately, what Jesus says, or what the preacher says in verse 13, is Mr. Law moved out of the house. And Mr. Grace has moved in. And you know what kind of spouse Mr. Grace is? Mr. Grace is the kind of spouse that walks into the house, and he also sees the mess. And he also sees that you don't have the life together. He also sees 
the things are not as clean as they should be. He sees the dust. He sees the dirt. He knows that the dinner got burnt, that the kids are all running around like little midget demons everywhere. Like He sees all of that. He even knows that you cheated on him that day. The Bible says every time we sin, it's like we're having an affair on God. And he knows it over and over and over that you cheated on him. And you know what kind of spouse Mr. Grace is? Mr. Grace says, you know what? I'm going to keep pursuing you. I'm going to keep loving you. Even if you're not as you should be to me, I'm going to be as I should be to you. I will continue to love you, and there's nothing, nothing that can separate you from that love. Now, I just want to ask you, and, and, and we're closing on about the band if they want to come forward. I just want to ask you this morning, how would your life be different if today you actually believe what I said is true? Like, not just up here, but in here. Like, can you imagine the kind of confidence you could live in knowing that I can now approach God's throne boldly? Can you imagine the kind of courage you can have to know that I can take any risk that I want in the kingdom of God and that I'm going to be safe and I'm going to be secure? Imagine if you finally believe this, what would happen is you would stop hearing that voice of condemnation and you would hear the voice of compassion, the gentle and lowly voice of Christ, the sweet conviction that leads you not in a toxic shame, but in the deeper life. Like, and then as a result, like you could be more compassionate with your spouse, more compassionate with your kids, more compassionate with yourself. Like imagine if you believe this, like not only would you have confidence and, and courage and compassion, like you could have contentment, like true contentment, guys. Like, true contentment is not found in anything in this world, anything under the sun. It's found in the loving presence of God. So you cannot experience contentment until you begin to let God love you as much as he actually says that he loves you. See, the reality is, like, let me let you in on a secret. You're never going to have your life completely together on this side of eternity. You're not. You're never going to be perfect this side of eternity. Like, we are going to continue to stumble. We are going to continue to fall. And the good news of the gospel is that, man, we can continue because of Christ to stumble our way into glory and know that God's grace will cover us every inch of the way because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And today, my hope is, man, that the Holy Spirit will take that reality and make it alive in your heart. My hope is that for some of you who have been walking in condemnation, walking in shame, walking in just chained to guilt, walking in this, this legalistic mentality that I've got to try harder, to be better, to pull myself up by my bootstraps, to somehow earn my way into a relationship with God. My hope is you'll realize because of Christ, in Christ alone, you can be approved. And when you realize that, you can experience the acceptance and the love and ultimately the life that you need that is only found in Christ. With that, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I want to pray for us. We'll sing one final song, take communion after we sing, and then then we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you so much for everyone who is here today, and I thank you for the opportunity we have now to hear and to respond to this gospel that I know that we often barely believe. My guess is today that there might be some in the room who these kind of teachings or like a breath of fresh air. There are others that maybe because of their own legalistic background or whatever it may, they, they get nervous and they feel like, oh no, are we getting a license to sin? And I'm just reminded, God, that it's your kindness that leads to repentance. It's your grace that it calls it your love that makes us want to walk in obedience to you. Would you please change our desires, God? Would you please help us to 
to know you, to walk with you, and then when we fall, to remember that you're right there to pick us up. I pray that in response to your grace and your love, that we will be a people who extend that to others. I pray there will be no one who is here today who will walk out of this room without knowing you, God. I pray that right now, through your Holy Spirit, that you would draw that person in who's in this room, maybe listening online, draw them into a relationship with you. Help them to experience and feel your love. It's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen.